Welcome everyone to Social Work Stories podcast. I'm Mim Fox and I'm here with my lovely co-host Liz Murphy. Hi Liz. Hi Mim. Hello everyone. Liz, we're really excited today because we're doing a bit of a different sort of episode. We've um, got a, a fantastic guest with us, Shia Tool Anstey, uh, who has agreed to come on and have a bit of a longer conversation with us about some of her practice in the area of working with children and families. I'm really excited about um, listening to Shy. Uh, and hello Shy. Um, we'll do an intro in a minute, but this is, a, I think I was talking with you a little earlier about the fact that we don't often talk about how social workers work with families. And I think it's really useful that we get to have a lengthier conversation with you because there's lots that we can learn about um, the approach that you use, Shy, with your families. Yeah, so hello, Shy. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Shy, it's so great to have you with us. Can I get you to let our listeners know a little bit about you and your background? Yeah, so my background's uh, kind of diverse. So um, I have been a social worker for a, a couple of years, um, but before then I've worked um, quite extensively in community and youth work. Um, and so I bring kind of a a wealth of that background with me, um, but most of that work has been with young people um, and then more recently young people and families. Fantastic. And Shai, you're doing a PhD at the moment uh, in the area of children and families, but it's a bit more specific than that, yeah? Yeah, so my PhD is looking at child-to-parent violence and there's kind of two components to that. Um, so there's one component around how do people talk about this form of violence and what kind of um, stories do they tell um, when they're recounting what happened. Um, and then the other part is, uh, from my experience, we as practitioners see this a lot in the work that we do. We see children who use violence towards their parents, um, but we tend to look at it through a different range of lenses. Um, so we might look at it as um, problematic behaviours or we might look at it as kind of delinquent or antisocial behaviours. Or we might look at it um, maybe as a problem with the parenting, that parents just don't have enough control of their children. And so I kind of got thinking about that and wondered how do those, how do we make sense then when we are presented with this as an issue with families that we're working with and what lenses do we apply and how do we really then respond to it? Um, so my PhD was looking at... Um, yeah, looking at how we respond to it and we as practitioners make sense of that. That makes a lot of sense to me, Shai, because when I hear you talk about the narratives we usually give around child-to-parent violence, my instinctive narrative is there's something wrong with those parents for the child to be acting in that way. Yeah, and that is what um, lots of research will indicate, that parents feel blame, but also when they go and seek assistance from um, services or from other people, family, things like that, that then there's the parent blame there. And a lot of programs that, uh, like evidence-based programs that work with child-to-parent violence, work on that parental aspect of what can we change about that person's parenting to then address this type of violence. Shai, does it ever work that the focus is on the young person who's demonstrating this problematic behaviour? Because I've often seen that too, that they become the, the focus and, and the problem, if you like. Yeah, so in, um, in evidence-based programs that exist, they try to work with both. Um, but 
talking from my experience, um, when working with these families, a lot of them the focus shifts entirely onto that one child, um, that the family then revolves around that one child and it's up to us as practitioners to try to see a bigger picture, to not just focus on, yeah, because if you've got a family with multiple children and one child is using violence, what what else is going on because the other children aren't? That makes total sense, Shai, because um, it, it reminds me of a woman that I worked with for quite a number of years who grew up in a household where there was a sibling who was very violent. And so a lot of the work that we did was um, around some of the healing from, from being the, the child that wasn't the focus um, and how separate she, she felt to the rest of the family because they had to separate her for her own safety. Yeah, and you see that, um, I guess, in other areas of practice, like saying things like with children with disabilities or mental health issues in a family, that it's on people's radar to check in with how the other children are going. Um, But it's not necessarily on the radar when you've got a child with kind of problems in this way, um, like problematic behaviours of violence. It may not be on people's radar to think about the safety of the other children, what the other children have seen, but also the idea that other children might hold some uh, strengths or some ideas, some strategies within that family to then put the piece of the puzzles together and also then to draw on when working with the child who is using violence. That, that actually feels like quite a com- complex perspective on the family to try and break it down in that way and then shift your focus. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I, I try to look at the different relationships in a family um, and really try and see who's interacting with who and how are they interacting. And my experience in working with Um, families where there is one child using violence it seems like that child's in the middle of the other interactions so normally uh, things like family systems theory or the family approaches get you to look at a family kind of like a triangle that you've got the two parents and then the children but normally children are kind of a point on the triangle on their own and when I was working with these families it seemed like the child who was using violence sat between on the lines, if that makes sense. So we have the three points of the triangle and we have mum mum as one point, dad as one point and children as a point, but the child using violence kind of sits on the line between them um, and it kind of becomes then kind of they're, they're kind of a conduit for the other relationships and that's obviously just, yeah, my perspective of working with, with some of these families but... Um, it just seems then it's not that just they revolve around each other, but yeah, that person's then a part of all of it. Um, and I feel like that's probably similar to other areas too. Um, you know, if you've got another child in a family that does um, take up a lot of time and a lot of energy for other reasons, that it makes sense that they're kind of parts of those relationships. Um, but to me, it also then formed part of, well, how do I get this family to kind of work well together and how do we then start to see other forms of interaction that aren't violence um, and kind of refocus. And also that would make sense to why then your client, Liz, so many years later had these reverberating issues around the relationship with that person but also the relationships within the family because if every relationship is mediated through the lens of the child who's demonstrating violence 
then actually that would be fundamental to your found your foundations of how you perceive your own identity, your relationship in the family, how the family construct in itself occurs, right? Definitely. And, and it also, um, in this particular woman's situation, prevented her from having a meaningful uh, relationship with all of the parties in the family. In fact, it was quite an isolating experience and she was kept away, not just from the, the child with the violent behaviour, but, but also her parents too, that, that, that it was always again through the lens of them trying to protect her from the siblings. So it was a, it was a very superficial, if you like, relationship as such. And she, she didn't know herself how to parent. So when she came back in to see me, it was because she had just, just become a mother and didn't know how to parent. Yeah, that makes so much sense though, doesn't it? It makes so much sense that actually the act of becoming a parent yourself would also raise all of these issues because you don't feel stable and solid within your notion of what does parenting mean and look like without a violent child around. <laughs> like that's, that's, your tr that's your map, right? Yeah, and programs yeah. like Circle of Security would get us to think about that. Like that is a that is a program gets us to look at our own parenting experience as us as children, how we were parented, to then think about how whether the responses that our parents gave us are what we want to replicate or whether those responses, you know, trigger feelings in us that make us uncomfortable and we don't want to do those things. But um helps us make sense of our own parenting experience to then go on and parent ourselves. Shai, the impression I get from listening to you talk about your work is that it doesn't sound like the old classic family therapist where the family come in to a nice ordered office and, you know, you sit and you have conversations. It sounds like you are with them in, in the family's environment. Is, am I right in, in that? Yep. So most of the work that I did with families was going to their homes, um, which is, I find, a really great experience to do. Sometimes it's hard because parents, you know, say a social worker's coming into the home. Um, that's a, There's a lot of uh, ideas that come along with that. Um, but I also feel it's a really great environment to kind of see more of those interactions um, and to then become a part of some of those other functions that go on. So quite often I do um, my assessments, kind of going through those, you know, questions that you need to ask while then parents are making lunches in front of me um, or then children are telling me about their day at the same time as trying to, you know, so trying to kind of stay focused. So I definitely learnt that art of a multi-conversation going on. Um, how do you talk about this while you've got children running in and out and playing games and needing afternoon tea and all of these things. But I found that then that got people a bit more comfortable to open up and talk about it. And it also gives you a, well, gave me a chance to kind of see, you know, potentially see some of the interactions that are taking place. Whereas when you bring people into an office, which lots of us have to, we're bound by the policies of the workplaces that we're in, um, it's artificial and we're not seeing those interactions. Um, but I did also use that as a strategy at times so that then we wouldn't have kids coming in and out and running around and asking different things. We might then use, go to the office for an appointment and use a whiteboard to then kind of flesh things out a bit more. But it, I was a bit freer in those roles to then see um, 
yeah, go into the homes and see that. So did that? Did you tend to find that your assessment process um, was done more in the the household? Bits of both. So um, we'd okay. kind of do the first one at the office, um, but then I always tried to be. I always have in the work that I've done, tried to be really understanding of people's circumstances. So families that I was working with where children used violence, they they already had loads of services involved. Um, people tend not to ask for help for this until it's quite uh, prolonged, um, until it's not just, you know, it's not just a one-off incident. It's then developed over this period of time and it then becomes really paramount that they need that assistance. You know, you've got broken furniture, you've got um, health issues, so maybe someone's been injured because of it, things like that. And so other people were generally involved and so I would try to recognise that this is a family who's meeting with lots of people. What can I do to help address that barrier of another service coming in? And so if I could offer a home visit and other organisations couldn't, then I'd do that. Or if I could offer um, a later appointment so that the parents didn't have to finish work so early, then I'd try and do that. I'd try to always put myself in um, in their shoes in some respects to go, what you know, what does it look like if you're a parent of this child? Um, you know, maybe I shouldn't ring during the day. Maybe I should find out if they've got a lunch break um, so that I can ring them on their lunch break instead and check that they've got somewhere to actually have a conversation with me. Just try to get to know a little bit more about what else is kind of going on for them so that they can maintain their jobs, maintain their employment and maintain who they are outside of the family as well. Well, that's really person-centred practice, isn't it, right? But in this situation, the family is the person. So it's not Absolutely. just the child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even though I worked in the services where that referral came through for that one child, that child lives in a family, regardless of whether I'm working with that one person and I think it's then about how we look at that circumstance to then justify the work that we do with other family members. Um, the work that we do with other family members has that flow on effect so I, I think part of it comes down to the nuance of language in how we talk about what we're doing. Obviously a conversation with a parent would support that child um, so it is work with that child. Shai, um, in a conversation we had earlier, you were talking about how grief and loss sometimes is the, one of the theory bases that you might draw on in this work, which kind of surprises me because we're talking about children and families. So how, does, how do you make sense of that? So I'm quite a visual person. Um, and so when I go in to do assessments or to work with families, obviously we as social workers have a really broad theoretical base but ones that really resonate with me are theories that have I can visualize and that visualization of the theory um, helps me then remember things and helps me stay focused in sessions um, so like I don't need to take notes when I'm doing assessments because I've used the theory that has a visual layout and I can then place that as I'm talking to someone so when I'm working with these families um Using grief and loss theories was stuff that I used, obviously, in grief and loss, but um, I then transferred that learning through to working with families when they've got um, one child who's using violence and then who's become that centre because 
the two different grief and loss theories growing, growing around grief theory um, and um, the dual processing grief theory are two, they're visualized theories um, and they really explain how the focus of your life can become about that. So growing around grief is a, a visual where you've got a big circle that's your life and then inside is the other circle that's grief. And sometimes that grief is huge and takes up that whole circle that day or for that hour. And then other times it's really small. And so it, for me, I was using those theories to get families and I didn't really talk to them about it obviously being a grief and loss theory, but I might've drawn it up and have said, you know, this is your family, this is your life, this is that big circle. And sometimes this child's violence occupies that whole circle. There was a big blow up and we we need to really address that and nothing else matters for that period of time. Everyone's safety is what matters. And so that, you know, that violence is, you know, centre and foremost and occupying the most space. But at other times it's not. And we need to then harness those other times to really invest in that family and, you know, provide some of those normative family functions that we might just be disregarding because of how paramount that violence is and those behaviours are, that we need to address them, but there's still other stuff around that child. So I might have, yeah, done some of those diagrams to then show them some of that so that not only do I work with that violence, but we need to work on all those other things around it so that the other things around it grow as well. And the violence is still always going to be there. So I know it's quite an alternative approach, but um, those visuals help me, um, I guess, help me make sense of things. And I'm um, I know that I, for some families, it helps them make sense of things as well. Well, it's interesting because it's not about eradicating the violence. It's just about making the focus become, I guess, more manageable. Would you say? Yeah, because I guess um, obviously that would be an end goal of working with these families is for that violence to disappear. But um, I guess we have to be realistic in some of that too, that just because I go in there this week, that doesn't mean that the violence is going to end this week. And so for me, I think um, I think because of the other fields that I'd come from working in, um, that we still need to make sure that there's other elements of the family. We don't want the family to be just about this violence. Because um, I guess it's not like other violence either. It's not like a, a domestic violence relationship between two adults where we can say just end. Like we can say in an idealistic world, just end that relationship and the violence then ends. We can't say that with a family like this. We need The parents are still responsible for that child. The parents still have to provide that legal responsibility as parents so how do we then support them to do that and to me I thought there was elements of that within looking at that family as a whole and I get that that's a simplistic view of domestic violence because it's not just easy to end a relationship but um, there's just that added complexity that the parents are responsible for that child so they can't just leave when there's violence going on they can't just end that. Yeah and that goes back to that narrative about responsibility and blame, I think, as well. Yeah, yeah. And there's lots of kind of counters, yeah, there's lots of dichotomous views around, yeah, who's responsible and who's at blame and how those narratives come into play when people are talking about it. So um, are there any other theories that you like to use? It kind of sounds like you you draw on a number of, of theories when you're working with families. Did you want to talk a little more about some of the other theories that influence your work? Yeah, so I do 
I do in like I do like systems theory because it helps me um, see the child or see the family in that bigger context. Um, so I, because the the advantage of using systems approaches when you're working with families is that then you kind of need to do different diagrams for each child because each child's system is slightly different. There's overlaps in their systems, but there's there's still their own unique systems. And um, yeah, so I, yeah, I try and use some of that when I'm working with families. Um, and I do use heads assessments, um, which I know not everyone uses when working with um, young people, but I find heads assessments... Um, so to explain a little bit, HEADS are uh, an acronym. Um, so we've got like home, education, activities, drugs and alcohol, um, sexuality and suicidality and self-harm. Um, and I find that good because it it's not a checklist per se, but it helps me make sure that I'm asking about everything for that child um, so that it's then... I think it's hard as a practitioner, you get that referral and the referrals, you know, says something like a child's using violence at the home and they've got issues at school and it's really easy to come in and kind of go, oh, okay, so what's going on at school and what's going on at home and to kind of have those two as that as it, um, whereas using those other frameworks really help me to wrap my head around, well, what else can I be asking about? What else is there in this home environment? Or you might then see that a child says that they have zero activities, that they've all they do is school and home. And so that kind of then points to an area that we might be able to work on that addresses this issue in a different way. Because I guess for lots of these families that I was working with experiencing this, they'd had lots of support already and the support wasn't right. Like it wasn't addressing everything. And so for me going in there, it was like, I'm another piece of this giant puzzle of practitioners coming in here. What, what can I offer? And I could offer that I could work with the family as a whole and draw on some other approaches. Did that mean that a lot of your work also involved communicating with the other services that were wrapping around the, the family? Yeah, so what I found working with those families is that um, people couldn't always make sense of what everyone was doing. <laughs> um, you know, it's some roles are kind of easy to define as in you provide counselling, but what are you really providing the counselling on to that family and how does then that fit in with the bigger picture of everything going on? So um, I would then try and get people to meet together and talk about what everyone was kind of working on and how then what we're working on would hopefully meet a goal um, and give everyone something to work on. So when I worked with families, I tried to have actions for every family member and it might be something really small um, but kind of wanted everyone to understand that we're all kind of responsible for that. Can you give us an example of what what some of the goals might might have been for the people you were working with? So um, some goals might have been around um, increasing school attendance, say, um, and so that might have then involved working with the school um, as well, uh, so having some actions for the school on that. It might have been, say, knowing that this child's going to have violent behaviours, but is there a way we can do an in-school suspension 
um, instead of an at-home suspension. Um, and that's not always possible due to lots of reasons, but that might have been something that then we try and do and then have some actions around, well, um, I'd really try and flesh things out. So it would be like if they're not, if there's issues going on at school, what's the morning look like before school? How can we make the morning before school be as smooth as it can be? So it might have been down to the tiniest of details of like, well, who's setting the alarm? How how are we going to wake up for school? Is the child responsible for waking up for school or is that something that one of the parents does? Is who's having breakfast? What's And for some families, it's breaking it down to go, well, we're going to have two pieces of toast for breakfast with, you know, and that's assigned to mum because she's the one that normally does breakfast. But, you know, you as the child, you're going to set your alarm and you're going to get up and make sure that you have the shower. And the actions for the other siblings might be they're going to pack their bags at that point in time. Um, So everyone's then kind of a part of it. Um, And they're not a part of kind of the violence itself um, because that, you know, lies in a particular spot but they're a part of kind of supporting that child in some respects and kind of being a part of that family so um, other actions that um, we might have had too is uh, I'd kind of engage in children in other activities Um, and so that might have been for the child using violence but it might have been around some of the other children in the family as well that when this was happening you know because of appointments or just because of you know, life and other circumstances that doing some of the extracurricular stuff had kind of dropped by the wayside or just going to friends' houses had dropped by the wayside. If you've got a child in your house using violence, it's not necessarily an environment conducive to having friends over. And you may not feel able to go to other friends' houses because what's going to happen at home when you're not there? So it may have been around bringing in some things like that, that, you know, we're going to have some play dates during the week and you can go to so-and-so's house and you might be able to go to so-and-so's house or um, a big one that I would always kind of put in as best that we could um, is around kind of family time. Um, What would family time look like um, this week? Um, So that then, uh, yes, this violence is occurring and we really need to address it and address people's safety, but also... um, when things are okay, what can we do as a family to have fun and learn about each other and enjoy each other's company and, um, yeah, sharing that exchange, I guess, because that, that to me was really missing when I'd go to work with some of these families that it, um, it's really hard to do that and that makes sense. Um, but we also want to make sure that the parenting doesn't just become about that. And it sounds like you... Um get quite detailed in in both learning about the different activities that, that members of the family engage in, but you also drill down for the details about the who's doing what, um, where are they going, what's the time frame around that. And I'm wondering about the next time you see the family, is that an opportunity for them to give you feedback about how those particular goals went? Yeah, and I guess drilling down like that has happened because of working with families. And I realized that I'd work with people say around school avoidance or something like that. And we'd set the goals around, you know, going to school, you know, going to school two days this week or something like that. And then it wouldn't happen. And for me to then work out what was going on, I had to drill it down. So it seems like, why am I not drilling it down preemptively? Um, And so 
that's how that kind of came about. But then it does give you a chance to really work out, well, what, where has a kink occurred along the way? Like where it's not an error. It's not, I don't want to use that term. I don't know the right term to use, but where has something happened that then the result hasn't quite worked out that we wanted it to. And having it broken down like that then gives people the chance to go, well, actually they just didn't set their alarm or they were meant to have the shower and they didn't have the shower. So then it's like, well, we know that that bit didn't quite work, but we kind of know the rest did. Like the breakfast got made, the alarm happened, but like what happened with the shower? Um, And so then it gives you that chance to talk about it. And I find if I go into details, it helps other people go into details. Um, It kind of comes, I guess, down to some of that role modeling kind of thing in that um, if I'm looking at those details, then other people will look at those details and we can then really start to see that bigger picture, I guess. So I'd imagine a big part of your role is to be curious about the routines, the the, the, the mornings, the, the, a typical day, those, those kind of events in, in a family's life? Yeah, and without then trying to seem like you're asking 100 questions as well. Um, so it's a, I guess it's a fine balance because it means that you do have to, you kind of have to ask a lot. Um, but I guess over the years of working with people, I've become comfortable in my own way of asking questions and my own way of seeing curious about um, kind of what's going on um, and how to phrase that. And and it's always genuine because I find some of these things are really fascinating. Like how do you get ready in the morning? We're all so different about how we do it. Um, and it's really insightful then because you see then how people work together, I guess, is the other side of it. Um, or how people could work together um, to achieve those things. Um, they're not just... I guess to me, they're not necessarily just part of a routine. They're an opportunity for something um, together as a family or for children that I've worked with where then their families aren't, like their parents aren't present in the morning because of work. It's then, you know, really celebrating, well, wow, not only do you have issues at school that make it really hard to go to school, you actually set your own alarm. You get up on your own. You have to have a shower on your own. You make your breakfast on your own. Those are like amazing achievements to do. No wonder why it's pretty hard to get out of the door and actually go to school because you don't have that like push, I guess, or it, it can make it extra difficult if you're suffering anxiety to go to school. So I guess breaking it down shows you more of the picture, shows you more of that story um, to what's really going on and gives you the chance to kind of see things to celebrate as well as things that then might need addressing. But it's also... Um, very rapport building and connecting with someone because to attend to the and be curious and interested in the details of one's life is special. Not everyone does that with you. And to have someone not to acknowledge it and also take a strength-based approach to, you know, the, the small achievements that, that, that are woven within in a routine or, or activity um, I would imagine that's very, um, it, it, it builds a relationship, shy that you have with them, but also acknowledges the effort that goes into, you know, what they're doing in their day and how they're living their life. Yeah, yeah, because I guess you're learning about them and not just that presenting issue. Um, like I'm interested in them as people, as individuals and as a family, um, but as a whole, not 
yeah, not just that one part to the puzzle. Shai, can I ask a question? You've mentioned anxiety just now. Does this sort of presentation of a family, does this sit in a mental health context in terms of the services that are working with these families? Or is this more in a community health context? Like, where does this sit? Because I would imagine that there would be families who struggle with suddenly finding themselves in a mental health context when this is just about what's happening in their family. Yeah, I guess my experience shows me that it sits in a huge range of fields. Um, And so a parent's first response um, is likely, like research shows us, is likely to be, you know, other family members or friends um, to go to for this. But then what services are there for this? Um, And so, uh, yeah, I guess research shows us parents will likely involve um, police if the violence... um, is really physical in those sense or violent um, against like destructive in terms of property, um, so breaking walls or furniture or things like that. Um, but, yeah, I guess from my my space, I was working in it kind of in that community mental health kind of space um, in a not-for-profit, um, but I know families that I was working with also turned to psychologists of like, um, you know, there's clearly some stuff going on for my child and maybe some talking therapy might help with this um, or, you know, family therapy places as well because this is, you know, it depends. I guess it depends how families view the issue of is this an issue with that child or is this an issue with within this family? Does that – it's hard, to, yeah, it's hard to articulate some of those things. but um, No, but that makes a lot of sense. The focus then – sometimes could dictate the service provision. And I guess, again, that comes back to the narratives that you were talking about at the beginning, how parents talk about and perceive what's happening in their family might then start to set the stage for who they might reach out to and who might then end up intervening. Yeah, and what got me really interested in this was that I was looking at this as a family approach and obviously I'm still new and I'm still new to research and PhD. So my views could very much change um, as this evolves and I evolve as a practitioner. But um, I was approaching it as a family perspective. And then I realised though, that was the work that I was doing. Like that was the lens of my work and the background that I had. Um, Like at the time I was kind of being mentored by someone doing reparative parenting. So that's like, there's that perspective and I'd come from working in um, a health area where then, you know, we're dealing with grief and loss and we're dealing with um, a diagnosis. It's a big issue. And so that was about a family response. So I still kind of had that because I'd been in that for years and still had that in my head. So when I started working in this and it was mental health, it wasn't violence, but it just ended up being that I'd get referrals for this, that then I yeah, took that family approach. But then I realised other people were working on this and were so heavily influenced by either their theories, like the theories that underline them as a practitioner and what, you know, kind of they value, but also really practice-led by the organisations that they work within. Um, So, you know, I'd see then these children being um, working with uh, juvenile justice. And obviously juvenile justice has 
you know, a theoretical underpinning as to why we approach something with um, restorative justice and the idea of who's in control and who's responsible. Um, and, and then, you know, I work with other people who are really trauma-informed and then when they look at these families, they're looking to see what, you know, what, what rupture, what trauma may have occurred within these. And so they all provide us a lens to look at this and they're all brilliant lenses to look at families with. And if we could all look at them in all the ways, that would be great to then see what works best for that family and what's really paramount. But um, that really showed me that um, we all look at this differently and we all have insights to offer this. But I think there's value in seeing how each of us actually do. And that's an area that's really kind of there's been pieces done on it in literature. There's different practitioner accounts of how they've responded to the violence. There's different um, case studies. There's different accounts from different fields and some really great books published on it too that look at different approaches. But to really sit down and apply that sense-making approach of if a family comes to you with this, what kind of questions do you ask? What kind of theories are you drawing on? How does an organization's practices influence you? Um, things like that haven't been done so much. Um, so I guess that's one component of it that I was, um, I guess it's probably coming up in this interview, but I am quite a reflective practitioner. I try to really um, work on my approach and I'm open to learning all the time and learning from mistakes that I've made or things that I could have done better as well as things that then I've done well and learning from that so I guess that's that practitioner side of it that I really wanted to make sense of then you know maybe in one sense validating my approach but also just understanding how we're working on this um but I guess the other side was that I saw people talk about it differently um so if a to me, I can kind of, this is obviously a generalisation, but um, some narratives that uh, still kind of resonate with me from my experience as well as then in literature is that um, if, a, if a male child was using violence towards their parents, we might have said things like um, that they were really aggressive um, or that, um, I'm trying to think of the right terms, that they that boys will be boys and so that when I'm asking questions around things in the past, it's like, oh, well, they've just always been a bit rough but they're a boy so they're just rough, like, you know, or they're a boy so they just break things. Um, and But then you might hear different kind of phrases and different terms used if it's a girl that might be things like that they're manipulative or that they're a bitch or that they're conniving or things like that that are that the narrative seemed a bit different when people are talking about that. And so I really want to explore that more and understand that. Um, and I don't think it's a nuance about a particular word per se. I think it's the ideas that come with that. Even though we could break it down to one word, I don't think we can reduce it in that way. I think there's bigger ideas at play and bigger parts of a narrative at play. And so that's how come I've yeah, kind of ended up where I am researching what I am, I guess. is the, <laughs> That's a long story to the short of it, I guess. <laughs> that makes so much sense though, Shai. It really um, brings it all together actually is because I was going to say to you, how do you make meaning of this sort of intensive work? But that's what you've just described is how, how you start to feel like where are the questions that are being raised for you? And then where might yeah. your focus Yeah, because I think originally I started out thinking I'd be yeah. quite 
solutions focused and maybe come up with some ideas to address this, solve the world through my PhD. Um, and then and then I hit reality um, and <laughs> realised that people are doing this work day in, day out. This, this issue is occurring. Um, what I can contribute is that I am kind of good at making sense of things um, and thinking about things critically and looking at that. And so I feel like my contribution can exist in that space of helping practitioners make sense of what they're already doing um, and seeing how that fits and seeing how that achieves outcomes. Um, and they may not be the outcome of ceasing violence because those things are difficult and lengthy to achieve. But yeah, what outcomes are we achieving from this work and where are people focusing their work? And um... I love all that. Shai, thank you so, so much. Uh, Liz, do you have any final questions for Shai on any of that? Uh, just listening to you, I was really inspired to hear how um, a, a, a reflective social worker, someone who's involved and obviously passionate about their work, continues that curiosity in expanding the, I guess, the, the work that's been currently done in, with families. And um, I, feel, I look, I feel really grateful that, that you're contributing to uh, the lives of these families and, and to our social work colleagues' practice. So thank you. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> Thanks so much, Shai. And um, like you said, there are lots of practitioners out there who do this sort of work every day. So um, I'd like to say to our listeners, if this is really making sense to you and um, this echoes some of the work that you're doing, let us know. Send us a comment or a review on iTunes, on, um, iTunes or Twitter, Instagram. Send us an email, socialworkstories.com. We would love to hear how this resonates with, with you as well.